You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, you can be seated. Good morning. You can get out your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 7. And that's where we're going to read this morning. Real quick, I want to say a big thanks to the Foundry. I don't think they can hear me out there. Uh, but y'all, they came at their own expense, just a way to be generous to us, uh, come and service this morning. So on your way out, uh, please do stop and tell them thank you for that. And if you're a visitor with us this morning, I'm sorry, we don't usually have all that. So uh, next week, it's going to be the black drip coffee uh, out of the carafe, and it'll be great. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles out, we'll be in Mark 7. And uh, fittingly enough, I want to start off talking about food. Now, I love a good buffet. I think most people are that way. I, I would think nobody, surely nobody can be in a bad mood at a buffet. Clearly, I love buffets. Which is, thank you. I was shocked recently when I read this headline. Brawl breaks out at Golden Corral over alleged steak shortage. Now, that's the most American headline you'll ever read in your life right there. The story says, more than 40 people, 40 people have been involved in a brawl at a golden corral in Pennsylvania. Please see, up till then, I was like, for sure this is happening in Louisiana. I was so relieved when I read Pennsylvania. The fight allegedly broke out after a customer became enraged when the buffet ran out of steak. Shocking footage from the Friday fracas shows a mob of patrons hurling punches and chairs, including baby seats. Hopefully no babies attached. While others in the crowd scrambled to safety, said one man. Thankfully, no one knocked over the cheese fountain. We got that going for us. Now, you read that and you're like, how on earth do 40 people get in a fight over steak at the Golden Corral? Well, it's because there was one big problem at the Golden Corral that day. One huge problem at the Golden Corral, and it wasn't steak, it wasn't a cheese fountain, it wasn't chairs, it wasn't any of that stuff. The one big problem that walked into the Golden Corral that day was the heart, the human heart. In fact, you could say there were 40 problems, 40 human hearts full of anger and violence and rage. And this story, I think, perfectly illustrates how most people view their spiritual lives. We are way too concerned with what we consume. That is what we take in. And we are way not concerned enough with what we produce. That is what comes out of us. Today, in Mark 7, Jesus wants to reframe and reverse how we think about our spiritual growth. And here's our big idea this morning. We are either made clean by Jesus or we aren't clean at all. We are either made clean by Jesus or we're not clean at all. Let's start out in verse 1, Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of, some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they Wash, And there are many other tra- traditions which they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So to understand what, why the Pharisees have such a problem here, we need to kind of pan out a little bit and get just an overall view of how they understood God and themselves. And here's the thing, y'all. They were right on a lot of things. So they understood just the Bible's big picture story is simply this, that our biggest need, our greatest need is a relationship with God. But our biggest problem is he is holy and we are sinful. We got a problem. So the sinful can't be in the presence of the holy. And the Bible's language for that, the picture it gives us many times is clean and unclean. He is clean. We are not clean. And so we must be washed clean in order to have a relationship with God. Now, they were exactly right on the problem. They were dead wrong on the solution. And so the way they understood we solved that problem is we avoid external things. External things make us dirty and our actions make us clean. And so they come and they approach Jesus about his disciples not washing their hands. Now, understand, this is ceremonial washing. This is not you know, your mama asking you if you washed your hands before dinner. It's not hygienic. Uh, it's it's serial, ceremonial. They, they hadn't gone through all the right ceremonies to show their faithfulness to God. And so for them, the Pharisees, the marketplace was a scary place. It was full of unclean things and unclean people. And if a Gentile touched you, you were unclean, and now you had to wash. Or if a Gentile touched a cup, and then you touched that cup, now you had to wash and do the ceremony and come unclean so that, in their understanding, you could be acceptable to God once again. Now, multiple times Mark calls this uh, the, a tradition, a tradition of the scribes. None of this was Scripture. It wasn't. It was added to Scripture. Now, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, you'll find some instructions for the priest. The priest in the temple, before he enters the presence of God, has to do a ceremonial washing. But that ceremonial washing is supposed to be a sign. It's supposed to point us to something greater. It's supposed to be a teacher of a greater reality. What's that reality? Just what we were talking about. God is holy and we are sinful. And so every time they did that, that was supposed to remind them of that greater reality. But here's what the Pharisees did. They would do what's called putting a fence around the law. So they read the law and they thought, okay, if that's good for a priest to do, even better for everybody to do. If we should do it in the temple, even better to do it in the marketplace too. And so what started fairly simple balloons into this complex tradition and ceremony to the extent that even this ceremonial washing they're talking about, they had specific instructions. So you had to get a measure of water equal to one and a half eggshells, which that's a weird measuring, but okay. One and a half eggshells, that's what you got to do. You have to pour it on each hand with your hand raised so that the water would drip down to your wrist. If the water didn't go down to your wrist, your hands aren't clean. You're not ceremonial ceremonially clean yet. And this may sound crazy to us. This may sound a little overboard, but in their understanding, this showed how much they cared. They took God's holiness seriously. They took sin seriously, and they were so dedicated to God, they were willing to go above and beyond. Well, that sounds great. In fact, I talked to a friend this week who used to work at nuclear 
power plants. And he said, you know, we had a 100x safety measure on everything. And so if our certification said, you know, hey, that thing, that's dangerous. You need to stay 15 feet away from that thing. In our manual, we would say, well, you got to stay 50 feet away. But then in our training, we would tell people, no, 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 you stay 100 feet away from that thing that is unsafe. And y'all, we hear that? That makes sense, right? In fact, it's even commendable. I mean, look how concerned they are about everyone's safety. That's amazing. They're so dedicated. But Jesus is going to poke a hole right in that balloon. He's going to show us, he's going to reveal why this method doesn't deal with our actual problem. So let's keep reading in verse 6. And he, that's Jesus, Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, Jesus responds harshly. I mean, these Pharisees, I imagine, regretted ever asking Jesus a question. In fact, they would have been furious. They would have been fuming at the mouth as Jesus talks to them this way. So he's essentially embarrassing them. He calls them hypocrites. That's a a word for an actor. So you put a mask on so that the outward, what you can see, doesn't uh, match or reflect the inward reality. He says, that's you. You're a bunch of play actors. And then he quotes Isaiah 29, 13, which they would have been absolutely familiar with. They probably would have accused a lot of other people of God talking about them. And Jesus says, no, it's not anyone else. That's you. See, Pharisees, you, you think you have a hand problem? No, 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 no. According to Isaiah. According to Isaiah, they don't have a hand problem. Which part of them is the problem according to Isaiah? It's not their hands. It's their hearts. You have a heart problem. See, think about their understanding of clean and dirty. So if to be close to God is to be clean, what is the state of a heart that is far from God? It's a dirty heart. Your hearts are dirty. They had been scrubbing and cleaning and disinfecting and not getting any cleaner where it matters. He goes on to give another example. He just won't let them go. In verse 9 through 13, he talks about uh, this tradition of Corbin. Now, Corbin was a, a dedication of money and property to the church. Again, sounds great. You could say, I am going to dedicate everything I have to God. That sounds amazing. It sounds commendable. But good things in the hands of a dirty heart turn bad very, very quickly. But essentially what they had done is they'd created a loophole. They had created a way to profit from the Bible's teaching at the expense of the most vulnerable. So the law also said, honor your father and your mother. And the way they interpreted that is it was your job to financially provide for your parents. Now, remember back then, there's no social safety net. There's no other programs, anything like that. And so if you didn't provide for them, they were destitute. That was their only hope. But then they made this Corbin. So they they made a way for you to say, gosh, mom and dad, you know, I would love, I would really, really love to provide for you. But I have promised everything I have to God. You wouldn't want me to break my promise to God, would you? Oh, no, of course not. It sounds so noble. It sounds so good. But conveniently, the Corbin, you didn't have to give to the temple until after you died. 
And so this created a way for them to live off all their stuff without being generous with it. Then the synagogue profited from it, but the elderly, the most needy, were forsaken. And all the while, all the while this is going on, they can pat themselves on the back, calling themselves holy, righteous, clean. But their hearts are dirty. You can notice a progression of how they begin to place their own tradition over God's word and God's heart and God's actual teaching. In verse 7, they begin by teaching their doctrines above God's word. So they may teach a little of the doctrine, but really, really, here's what you need to do. But then that devolves into they just leave God's word in verse 8. And then in verse 9, they reject God's word. And finally, in verse 13, they just make God's word void. It has no power left in their life. So you got this group of people that claim to care more than anyone else about God's law, but they were actually making themselves superior to it. And we need to know, men and women, we need to know, we will do exactly the same thing. The nanosecond, we make religion about cleaning the exterior without dealing with our hearts. So next, Jesus shows that this just isn't a problem for a few religious leaders. It's all of us. Verse 14, he called people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So he gathers. He gathers all the people. He's not, he's not just talking to the Pharisees anymore. He gathers. He's like, huddle up, guys, everybody together. He wants them to do two things. Two things. Notice what he tells them to do. Hear and understand. I want you to hear me, and I want you to understand what I am telling you. Hold on to that. That's going to be important later. And then what he tells them in verse 15. Y'all, I think to us, it sounds good. It makes sense. To them, this is revolutionary. It defied everything that made sense to them about their spiritual life. Because then they thought they were clean by doing all the stuff and avoiding all of the unclean things, all the wrong things in the market. And then by doing all the washing, that's what made them clean. But it's like, it's like Jesus had just gathered the crowd at the Golden Corral and said, do you understand now? Your problem is not a lack of steak. It's not dirty hands. It's not anything else external. The problem is your heart. So he keeps going to verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So he gives us this list. Twelve forms of dirt found in the human heart. You know, part of this list I can feel pretty good about, you know, theft, murder. Okay, okay. I've only murdered a few people, so I'm doing okay. <laughs> then coveting, well, that's like 10 times a day for me. Pride, that's pretty constant. Foolishness, you can ask my wife about that. Ouch. So much of that list is in my heart. Jesus is saying, this is what you and I produce. It's not about what we consume. It's, about, it's not about what we come in contact with. You and I produce our own uncleanliness. That's what he's saying. Listen, I would, I would contend this is the scariest, most horrifying thing Jesus could have said to them. 
you know, there's kind of a cliche that'll come up in horror movies or ghost stories. Even you'll see it in commercials. I saw it in uh, one of the SEC shorts videos. Anybody watch those SEC shorts videos? Really funny to get on there. They, they make fun of Alabama a lot, which I really appreciate. Uh, that's great. Kim's not laughing. She's just staring me down. I shouldn't have looked over there. It's this thing, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of cliche where somebody's at home and they get a, a phone call. It's scary and it's terrifying and it's threatening and they hang up and they get the call again. And they hang up and they, they keep getting the calls and the calls keep coming and, and keep threatening. But then by the end, they find out something even more terrifying. They find out the calls are coming from inside the house. That's the worst thing you can hear, right? That evil that you feared but thought maybe you were uh, protected from, safe from, it's not out there. It's in here. It's inside the house. And Jesus has just told us the calls are coming from inside the house. And that means, men and women, the fence around the law doesn't work. It doesn't work. So if we say, okay, this podium is unclean, stay five feet away. And then somebody's like, you better make it 10, better make it 15, better make it 20. Y'all, where is the dirt staying? Am I getting any farther from the uncleanliness? No. It's not over there. Where is it? Oh, no. What do I do about that? Because, listen, if my biggest problem is dirty hands, man, I can, I can wash them. I can fix that. If it's other people that will make me unclean, I can avoid people. I'm great at avoiding people, as a matter of fact. But what do I do when my own heart is the thing producing the evil? I know how to scrub my hands. How do I clean my heart? There's a simple answer, actually, a very simple answer in the Bible. You can't. I can't do it. Essentially, the Bible says you and I need a heart transplant. You cannot get to God with the heart you were born with. You need a new one. Now, have you ever heard of somebody giving themselves a heart transplant? No, that would be foolish. And this is the point Jesus is trying to make. He is trying to get us to realize we cannot make ourselves clean. We are either made clean by Jesus or we're not clean at all. And next, Jesus gives us two living, breathing, real-life parables to illustrate what he wants us to hear and understand. Let's pick it up at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So we meet this Syrophoenician woman. And y'all, you need to understand, Jesus went way out of his way to get to this woman. He traveled a long Way. He traveled about 125 miles. Now, back then, they could walk 8 to 10 miles a day. So they have just walked at least 12 and a half days for this one person. And this one person is the perfect illustration of the emptiness of the Pharisees. She's from Tyre and Sidon. Uh, some people like Jezebel are from there. Not exactly a winner in the Old Testament. You can go look in the Old Testament. This area is cursed. Lots of times in the Old Testament. I mean, there's curse after curse after curse on this place. So for a Pharisee, this is the most unclean place in the world. 
And in the most unclean place in the world, he meets the most unclean person in the world. A Gentile woman with a demoniac daughter. She is a cliche of everything the Pharisees avoided. And so if you were to go, if you were to go ask the Pharisees, okay, okay, Pharisees, how can this person be made clean? They say, she can't. She's too unclean. In fact, they would not even teach the scriptures to this woman. And so their traditions, all of their rituals do this woman absolutely no good. They cannot meet a single need she has. Keep reading verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Now, we read what Jesus says to her, and it sounds kind of mean. You're right. Does Jesus need a Snickers? Is he hangry? What's, what's up with attitude, Jesus? This feels uncomfortable. But I want you to notice the woman's not offended. And we don't need to be more offended to her. And in this interaction, Jesus is not being offensive. But if he's not being offensive, what's he doing? Simple as I can put it, he's giving her the gospel. He's giving her the gospel. It all comes down to, in this little short parable, who is the child at the table? Now, there's volumes written. We don't have time to break it down and go into it. But it all depends on who is this child at the table. To which I would point us to Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the child at the table. The picture he's painting for her is Jesus receiving all things from the Father and freely, liberally distributing them to us. Jesus is saying to this woman, you on your own, you have no access to the things that you need. But I can give it to you. You can get it through me. And her response in verse 28, her response, simply put, faith. This woman, she's she's one of only two people and all of the Gospels, who Jesus commends for their faith. In the account in Matthew 15, Jesus looks at her and says, O oh woman, great is your faith. What's she saying? She's essentially saying, I'll take anything I can get from you. Because you're my only hope. Whatever I need, it is going to come from you. See, she understood. We are either made clean by Jesus, or we're not clean at all. Then the scene changes and we meet a deaf man in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon of the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay hands on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears. After spitting, touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said, that is, be opened. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Okay, so Jesus doubles back. So he was a 12 and a half day journey from where he goes past that to the other end of Galilee. Again, way out of his way for one person. And actually, Mark is the only gospel writer that records this specific miracle. This is here for a reason. Now, remember verse 14 when he turns to the crowd. What two things did Jesus want from the crowd? To hear 
and to understand. To hear and to understand. And here we meet a deaf man. How can the deaf be made to hear? You can't, but Jesus can. And we get this interesting detail. He puts his finger in his ear, and he sticks his finger on his tongue. It's like a reverse wet willy. This is weird what's happening here. Why is Jesus doing this? But it made me uncomfortable. Here's the picture. Jesus is literally reaching inside this man. He is showing us it's not our outside that's unclean. It is our inside. And you can no more clean your own heart than this man can make himself hear and speak again. But Jesus can. Jesus can reach aside of you and he can give you ears to hear. And then notice the crowd's reaction, verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He hath done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So what was the second thing Jesus wanted? He wants us to hear and to what? To understand. Listen to what they say. He has done all things well. That word well, it means rightly. It can mean splendidly. It can mean beautiful. And it means good. They're saying, Jesus, he's good in all that he does. And right then, right there, all of the Jews, immediately, their mind would have gone to Genesis 1. Where God, he, he creates light, and, it, it, and then he calls it good. He creates the land and the waters, and it was good. God creates all the living creatures, and it was good. Jesus is good in all that he does. Now, you tell me, do they understand? Yes, they understand. See, the, this crowd and the response, they're the opposite of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees totally misunderstand Jesus, and they misuse and contradict Scripture. The people here, they understand Jesus perfectly. And they may not even know it, but they are quoting scripture about Jesus. There's another detail here. The, the definition we're given of the mute man, this, this Greek word, it's only used one other time. And it's in the Greek version of the Old Testament in Isaiah, which Jesus just quoted some 700 years before this. And Isaiah is describing what is going to happen when the Messiah comes. And he writes, in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the, shall the lame man leap, leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. These people are proclaiming, Messiah is here. We are seeing him in front of our eyes. And this Messiah, Jesus He's your only hope of being clean. He's your only hope. Men and women, listen, you can do all the ceremonies. You can do all the traditions. You can do all the things. But either Jesus makes you clean or you're not clean at all. And here's the good news. Here's what these last two episodes show us. He can and he wants to make you clean. Which I think, you know, as I've studied this chapter this week, there's a couple of good questions for us and in the way of reflection and an application for us in our life, the first question is this. What external forces have you been afraid of? So if the uncleanliness isn't out there, what external forces maybe have you been afraid of? 
You know, for the Pharisees, again, the marketplace, a scary place, full of threats, full of unclean things and unclean people. You know, for us, a lot of times, and for Christians in our culture, instead of lions and tigers and bears, oh my, it can be media, culture, disagreement, oh my, and we're so afraid. But Jesus, I think, he's showing us a better way. Did you notice both the people who got healed at the end of the chapter were brought to Jesus by someone else? The little girl didn't come to Jesus. Her mother did. The deaf, mute man, he didn't bring himself to Jesus. His friends brought him. Here's, here's what I think Jesus is telling us. I think Jesus is telling us, listen, the people in the marketplace are not a threat to our cleanliness. They're people that we can bring to Jesus. I want us to notice here the unbelievable multiplication of what happens in this chapter. So some friends bring a man to Jesus, but then watch how it multiplies out. They can't keep quiet about it. Verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Now, what's going on here? I I don't think this is a picture of disobedience. I think when Jesus tells him this, y'all, I think he's grinning like a Cheshire cat. I think he knows exactly what's happening. This is irony. This is contrast to the Pharisees. So what the Pharisees, who are supposedly clean, are supposed to do, but won't, all of these supposedly unclean people, you can't stop them from doing. They cannot be silenced. There's no stopping them. And so what Jesus does in one man multiplies out. It balloons out. But what's maybe even more amazing is where it starts. See, this didn't start just here in chapter 7. It didn't even start just with Jesus showing up right then. It starts back in chapter 5. Back in chapter 5, we meet a man who is possessed not by a demon, a legion of demons in this exact same area, in the Decapolis. And Jesus heals him. And then we read in chapter 5, verse 20. And then he went away, and that's the man, began to proclaim, where? In the Decapolis, in this region, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So Jesus, he heals one man, and then he leaves. He pieces out. He's gone. And by the time he comes back, there's a group of friends that know to bring their deaf, mute friend to Jesus. How'd they hear about that? How did they know that? One man. That one man that Jesus left behind in the Decapolis, telling his story about what Jesus had done. So it started with one one man, and it multiplies far beyond that one guy. You know, I've spent some time thinking about what I want our church to be in this community. I think if I could summarize my, my desire for our church, it's really just two words, bless and multiply. Bless and multiply. New Testament says, you know, we're just temporary travelers here. This is not our home. But Jesus has us here for a season. And while we're here in this world, we are called to bless. Even those who curse us, we bless. This community ought to be a better place because we were here. People's lives ought to be different because we are here. And I think what Jesus is showing us is, you know, when we no longer have to be afraid of the world, we are free to bless the world. How do we do that? How, how do we bless the world? Simply put, Mark is showing us here, the way we bless our community is we bring people to Jesus. It's that simple. That's what we do. 
and then we multiply. When Jesus does something in us, it doesn't stop with us. The demoniac, the deaf man, they show us the way we multiply what Jesus does is by telling our story to our community. That's as simple as the crowd does. It's as simple as that one demon-possessed man did. He just told his story to his community. So, church, let's not be afraid of external forces. Let's bless and multiply Jesus' work in our community. I think it's also important that we ask ourselves another question. So, not in addition to what external forces are maybe we be afra- we're afraid of that we don't need to be, what external actions have you been trusting? What external actions have you been trusting to make yourself clean? You know, some of us, I think this morning, maybe what, what we need is not so much to change what we are doing, but to change our perspective on what we are doing. Because we can so easily fall into the same trap as the Pharisees, can't we? I'll, th- I'll give you one example from my teenage years. You know, so I may say, you know, God wants me to be pure in my relationships. And that's true. That's biblical. He does. But I may say, you know what? But I want to be extra careful. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kiss dating goodbye. Hypo- hypothetically, okay? And I'm going to expect that because my, of my different actions, I'll avoid the same pain, sin, brokenness that everyone else experiences. As if... The impurity came from a dating model and not my own heart. Makes perfect logical sense when we're in the middle of it. Absolutely. But it is toxic to your soul. And it leads you in the same direction as the Pharisees. Because here's what the Bible teaches men and women. The dirt is in here. And that means the best actions you can offer up contribute nothing to your salvation. All that you and I All that we can bring to the table when it comes to God is that list of 12 forms of dirt. Our sin is all that we can contribute. And you may say, but wait a minute. Aren't I supposed to do good things and avoid bad things? Yes. But your perspective is important. We need a perspective shift. See, all all the things we're doing or avoiding, they're not washing, they're worship. They're not making ourselves clean They're praising the God who has already made us clean. And that is all the different difference in the world. This means that, think about it, that Syrophoenician woman, the moment Jesus said to her, your faith is great. In that moment, she has been gifted. She has been given all of what the Pharisees have been working so hard for and cannot earn. The very righteousness of God. It's hers in an instant, by faith, given, not earned. And it is the same for everyone here who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that means for you, for you, there is not some better version of yourself that gets it together a little bit more that God can love any more than he loves you right now. That means for you, there's not some better version of yourself that can be any more clean than you are right now. Because the moment you put your faith in him, you get all of his righteousness. You are made clean. So stop washing and let's start worshiping. Your hope is not in yourself, church. Listen, his mercy is greater than all of your works. His grace is greater than all of your sin. His loving kindness is more faithful than you and I can ever be. And we are either made clean by Jesus or we aren't clean at all. And praise God, he has made us as white as the snow.
Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.